0: For me now it's less about actually delivering all that work and it's much more about sitting around that am uh, creating the space and the opportunities for other people to like to deliver that. So empowering others to do things is really exciting because it's in a way it's taken me back to what I think I was doing best in the military. You know, like we can all work hard, but if you can actually get lots of people working hard and aligned in a good way, then you achieve so much more.
1: Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge, and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker, looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, my guest today is Rick Lay, who is a veteran of 21 years' service in the Royal Australian Navy as a Logistics Officer, although his military experience was much more than pure logistics. With Major Unit Command under his belt, Rick's operational service included active service in Iraq, East Timor and Cambodia, as well as exchange duty with the United States Navy. Rick's leadership skills were honed in a range of demanding challenges, both in the Navy as well as executive education. Rick has uh, this insatiable intellectual curiosity and has had great success in helping organisations develop individual and group potential. He works directly with the Melbourne Business School as a program director and is the founder of an executive education company bringing the globally renowned Centre for Creative Leadership programs and research to Australia, New Zealand and the South West Pacific. Rick has been instrumental in working directly with client organisations at board, executive and management level to design and implement high-impact programs that meet their needs. What I found curious, though, is he's also an accompanied screenwriter and prize-winning published author. What I loved about our conversation was Rick's candor, the stories from operational service in both Cambodia and Iraq, and I guess the lessons he shared around the enemy of competing interests from an experience he had during that service in Iraq. Let's get right in. So, Rick Lay, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show, mate. My
0: pleasure, Marty. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Well, look, the question I always ask uh, the guests is, how did you end up joining the service, or in your case, the Royal Australian Navy?
0: Well, I guess it's not a terribly exciting story, but I was uh, the standard young teenage boy trying to work out what I was going to do when I I grew up, and my dad took me off to a, a recruiting fair. And we checked out the stands for studying law and medicine and all the kinds of things that you imagine people would do. At the time, I was pretty keen on becoming an architect. I had an uncle that was an architect and that, like knowing absolutely nothing about what architects did, it sounded kind of cool. He traveled overseas and he drove a nice car. And so I thought I'd check that out, only to discover that there was lots of maths and things like that involved in becoming an architect. So that wasn't quite so good. We ended up at the Defence Force recruiting table. And something really took my dad's eye. And of course, something took my eye too, and these were photos of people rappelling out of helicopters and you know ships crashing through waves and guns firing and all those sorts of all those sorts of things. And so my dad grabbed a couple of pamphlets and we uh, as we were sitting in the car on, on the way home. he was asking me what, you know, like what I thought. I was you know maybe 15 or something at the time. And I said, oh, you know, well, I know I definitely don't want to be an architect anymore, but I'm, I'm still pretty up in the air about some other things. So those things, of the, the Army and the Navy, they, they look kind of interesting, Dad. And he goes, yeah, they looked really interesting to me too. Now, I didn't discover until a few years later what was actually really interesting to my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> the headline that had caught my dad's eye was free university education. And so dad became very encouraging for me to join the military. Uh, I'm the only person in my family that's ever actually joined the military. I don't come from a long line of Army, Navy, Air Force kind of people. But the free university education was really important to my dad. And my, uh, my dad's, as I look back on my life, my dad's kind of become more of an important figure than perhaps I, appre- oh, definitely than what I appreciated as a teenage boy. But he'd really encouraged me to, you know, to study hard at school. And he was very keen for me to go to university mainly because he'd left school when he was 15. And so he'd hated school. He didn't really enjoy it too much, ended up finishing his high, his leaving school certificate back at night school and then studying part-time at university when studying part-time at university was really unusual in the 1960s. So for him, education was a way of getting forward. And if you could get someone else to pay for it, like the federal government or the Department of Defence, that was a fantastic thing. So that's how I kind
1: of fell into the military, Marty. So, you joined the Royal Australian Navy. What were you looking forward to as a career?
0: Well, I think, in truth, I, I I wasn't really that sure. I'd enrolled to study economics and computer science because that's what the selection panel thought we should be doing. And I, I've got these crystal clear memories of joining the Defence Academy as part of that first intake way back in January 1986. And these were, of course, also the days of the overhead transparency. So we probably all remember those, you know, someone scratching away with a with a texter on an overhead transparency and maybe putting it on upside down or inverted or all that sort of thing. And uh, I remember there was an SAS major who was talking us through how fortunate we were to be there on that particular day. And he, he put some put some numbers down. I don't remember the specific numbers, but it was something like, you know, thousands of kids had applied know, less had actually gone through the selection process. Obviously, less or fewer of those had been selected. And we'd ended up with around about 400 of us there at the Defence Academy. And his tagline was, we were the cream of Australia's youth, the cream of Australia's youth. So I'm going to come back to that kind of little tagline perhaps a little bit later in my story. So coming back to your question, Hmm. I actually didn't really have much of an idea about what I wanted to do. The Navy ran a fantastic program for the young junior officers. uh, About three weeks after joining, they took us all to Sydney and we got to visit lots of ships and establishments and we got to meet lots of the officers that were in various different specialisations. And basically that was a chance for the different specialisations to pitch to us to kind of get us keen on their careers. And so I kind of again fell into mm-hmm. you know, what was then called the supply specialisation, like a little bit accidentally, but it was an impressive sort of pitch and it was it was something that mm. I think for me turned out to be you know, like to be really good. Who were some of the leadership
1: heroes or influences on your growing up or in those formative years as you joined the Royal Australian Navy?
0: Yeah, so I think about this every time. I'm running a leadership programme too, because you know, it's it's one of the questions we love to ask people because we know that How we're influenced is going to shape us in in some big ways and maybe some little ways. But I think back to my, you know, like when I was a a younger boy or a teenager, I didn't really feel that there was any really strong influence. I guess, you know, I like watching sport on telly and things like that. So I probably had all those stereotypical views about leadership being, you know, a real sporting sort of thing. Business figures didn't really figure in my life so much. My mum's side of the family are all farmers by background. So very kind of down-to-earth kind of people. And in fact, when I came home on my first leave from the Defence Academy, I told my dad and a couple of my uncles that were around at our place at the time, I relayed or related the story about the cream of Australia's youth. My dad put his cup of tea down and he goes, oh, well, you know what cream is, don't you, Rick? Rich and thick. And so that was kind of a nice way of, for me, having my balloon sort of punctured around that. And I think it's that cream of Australia's youth thing is, is interesting. And I know in your career, you would have experienced all of us young academy officers coming out into the fleet. And certainly probably lots of other listeners on your podcast will have experienced academy officers sort of coming out into field, you know, field units and all that sort of thing. And definitely for the, for our first few years coming out of the academy, there was a real rub point between the academy graduates and the rest of the rest of the ADF, and part of it goes back to these mm. probably misplaced sort of influences that they'd kind of you know implanted mm. in our minds that we we were better than everyone else. That kind of causes some problems like later on. So again, coming back to your question, sorry, I'm kind of answering in quite a, bit, a circular way. That um, I don't think I had any really strong influences. I probably had some of the standard ones, you know, teachers, sports coaches, parents, and my peers, but like. No one that really sort of stood out as a very, very strong influence. Though as I look back on it, the more I think about it, it's my dad, because my dad mm. died when I was just before I turned 21. So all of those little funny stories and all that sort of thing, you know, are kind of things that I wish I could be coming back and still talking to him about as well.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about that sort of perspective of deciding that perhaps the uh, the intake into the academy were the, the cream of Australia's youth. It, we going to be really careful in organisations, haven't we? About being identifying a certain group of people, being elite, so to speak, it sets us up for a fall, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a kind of couple of experiences I'll, you know, I'll share with you and the listeners of the podcast a little bit later. I was very fortunate, I think, because partly. Partly some of the other stuff that was inculcated in me by my dad was, you know, studying hard. Academic achievement was, yeah, like, was worthwhile and important. That wasn't necessarily encouraged at the Defence Academy, which is kind of ironic when they're talking about the cream of Australia's youth. In fact, we had another expression at the Academy, which was fifty-one percent as an exam result was wasted effort.
2: Right.
0: But forty-nine percent was a wasted year, and I kind of, kind of never got that because I. I've always enjoyed studying. I've always enjoyed learning. I've always enjoyed pushing myself a little bit. So I was one of the few Navy cadets that actually stayed on and completed an arts honours degree. And that took a little bit of persuasion and influence, particularly when I told the Navy that I planned to write my thesis on Clive James. Right. How interesting. I'd had this fantastic idea about maybe I could get the Defence Force or the University (laughs) of New South Wales to sponsor me to go to England and I could actually interview Clive James that part never worked, but it was certainly fascinating fascinating staying on and doing that doing that honors year with just three other three other fellow cadets and really really going deeper into, you know, study, research, all those sorts of things and trying to keep up with the reading load, which mm-hmm. back in those days was about a book per day to actually just sort of keep up to the classwork, but but I absolutely loved it. And the advantage for that was because I stayed on an extra year. I kind of left the academy a year after that initial intake, and so a lot of my classmates got to experience those rub points, uh, you know, in a much more direct way. And so I think, I think perhaps with the chance of another years, 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 you know, uh, years life under my belt, maybe that was a bit more maturity too. That, but it was certainly a little bit easier coming out a little bit later and being able to avoid some of those rub points, or at least kind of tamp them down.
1: Yeah. I think those rub points are often like an organization that maybe where you're there's a takeover and you're integrating another organization and it's sort of it's almost a, a clash of cultures, isn't it? And but I remember those years and and I think what was the change point was when we recognized that actually the academy was producing officers of quality who were focused and motivated. Uh, towards their careers, and while they might not have had a different had a different path to us, their focus was the same as us.
0: Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, I, I often reflect around about cultures within organisations or between organisations, and what a lot of the focus tends to be on is actually what's different mm. about those cultures. So, and that that's where the rub points are, right? Yeah. But if we spend a bit more time talking about actually what we share. You know, a common goal, a, you know, common aspirations, common values, and all that sort of stuff. We probably find in many of the cases that we actually share much more in common than what we than what we differ around. So, I think that's I think that's a great insight.
1: Yeah. So, your career was uh, in the navy was around being a, what we called then a supply officer, but now what we might call a maritime logistics officer. But it took you to some really interesting places in your career, didn't it?
0: Yeah. I think in many respects, I had a pretty non-traditional sort of naval career, and probably the most non-traditional part was I actually ended up doing lots of joint work, particularly on the ground with my Army and Air Force colleagues than certainly a lot of my peers. And there's probably kind of two specific things that that might be interesting to you and to the listeners. One is that uh, I got posted to Cambodia with the United Nations Transitionary Authority, the Peacekeeping Force, back in the early 90s, in fact, in 1992, I was home on leave visiting my mum. As I mentioned before, my you know, like my dad had recently passed away. I was only 23 or maybe 22, and I got a phone call from, from the poster. So that slightly more senior officer who holds his life in your hands, and he said, Rick, have I got a deal for you? How'd you like to go to Cambodia on Tuesday next week? <laughs> so this was Friday. On Tuesday, I had to Zoom back to Melbourne i just moved out of the officer's accommodation at Cerberus and I was living in this the ramshackle house. I had to get that packed up as best I could. I had to tell my girlfriend at the time that I was disappearing for some as yet unspecified time. And then we did what was, I think it was still probably called pre-deployment training, but it, it was definitely nothing like the pre-deployment training that I experienced going to the Middle East, you know, 15 years later. This was all, all a big rush. I can't remember how many inoculations we got we all had to be converted to uh, to, to qualify on the Steyr personal weapon. And a kind of funny little sideline story was that they'd sent out some instructors from Singleton. They'd been told that there was this Australian force that had to deploy rapidly to Cambodia. And it was just really an administrative thing that we had to qualify. It shouldn't be any problem. Could they get us all qualified in a morning? And, of course, that message was read, hey, there's this rapid force that needs to deploy quickly to Cambodia. It's just an administrative thing. They all assumed we were special forces kind of backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. And this was kind of reinforced when they turned up to do our conversion training, and we're all still in civilian clothes because we hadn't been issued our the DPCUs at the time. And, of course... We Navy people and the Air Force people in this small unit, we quickly disabuse them of that notion as we're disassembling these weapons and there's springs and parts falling all off. And then they said, okay, we're really going to just slow down and we're not going to be doing any stuff with live rounds and all that sort of stuff with you today. We're just going to go up, we'll get you away. So that was fantastic heading off to Cambodia. And I think that the most interesting thing for me as I look back on it from a leadership perspective was it was I ran – the seaport down in uh, Sihanoukphal or Kampong Som as it was called as well at the time and it was really difficult communicating with the headquarters that i worked with just due to the communications network there and so basically as a very young lieutenant I had a navy chief and I had an army sergeant in my team and it was up to us to kind of figure out what needed to happen and what we needed to do and so being given that autonomy and that responsibility as a very junior officer was Ended up being fantastic for me. I just I just loved it. It was probably, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, it's the best job I had in the military simply because everything we're doing every day, you could actually see the impact it was having on the communities around us. So it was much more than just a military operation. We were doing lots of, you know, unofficial reconstruction. We were doing lots of unofficial, you know, civil and military affairs. And this was perhaps the first time that I realised how important it was for me to be influenced by those senior NCOs that were actually in my team. So the ones that were kind of much more experienced in life, but particularly in their roles. And so the first name I'm going to drop is no one in royalty. It's no no sort of two star you know officer. It's an army sergeant at the time, and I'll just get his first name, and that was Lindsay. So he had a big influence on me, and actually uh, had a big influence on on our little team being so successful there.
1: I think that's an important lesson, isn't it, for leaders is to recognise actually where there is expertise and experience, particularly if you're developing as a leader and recognise the people around you and the fact that they can be great mentors. And while there might be some hierarchical structure, you kind of need to ignore that sometimes just to make sure that we're building good relationships, connecting with those folk and, and getting them to bring all of their experience and the experience that we don't actually have.
0: Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, as I was as I was getting myself ready ready for this podcast with you, it actually got me to go back and think about all of those, like particularly the senior NCOs, but also the also the junior officers that had actually worked with me and for me and all that sort of thing. So while absolutely I was influenced by some of the senior officers, as I kind of reflect back on my career, I think I was much more influenced by those sort of senior NCOs that were around me. So you know, if, if I if I think back on a career that it wasn't drastically long. I you know, like I spent just over 21 years in the Navy. but I had a couple of fantastic jobs. I did you know three department head jobs at sea. I worked for the Chief of Navy as his research officer. I, I was a PowerPoint officer, Martin no, when the Howard <laughs> government was first elected. So I got to sit in there and actually make sure the Army, Navy and the Air Force's uh, you know slides for the briefing of the two incoming ministers uh, you know, went without a hitch. I also did two years on exchange with the US Navy, which which I absolutely loved as well, and served served over in Iraq also with the multinational force headquarters. So, you know, that's kind of some broad experience coming across lots of leaders. Mm. But I think back to that point I was making before about the cream of Australia's youth and my dad popping my balloon and reminding me that cream was rich and thick and yeah when i first uh, got out of the academy all of my instructors as it turns out they were all officers but they'd all come up through the ranks they're all they're all senior sailors and one of their strongest messages to me and to a bunch of others was hey look we know you're smart we know you've got your university degrees under your belt but there's these people called sailors and soldiers and you're going to need to lead them and we can help you with the experience around that and so that was a very formative experience. So I think back to Andy, Barry and Mark, who are my kind of three main instructors on that course and just how valuable that was. I didn't appreciate it until a couple of months later when I was actually out there in the fleet that that sort of stuff was was super important.
1: You mentioned uh, you also served in Iraq on an operational deployment over there and and had you doing some interesting things. What were the, what were the leadership lessons there working in that coalition activity over there?
0: Yeah, so... I think it's probably better if I kind of explain it with kind of two funny examples.
1: Stories are always good.
0: So one is this clash of cultures. So we were still using some of those expressions back at the time that Australia, you know, punches above its weight and all that sort of thing. And we've we yeah, you know, we've been partnered with the US forces, you know, you know like almost a hundred years and that sort of thing. And and we do. We work very well with the US. We work very well with the the Brits. We work very well with the Kiwis, of course. And increasingly, you know, like we're working with the Dutch, particularly in the case of yeah, you know, like Iraq, there was the the Almatana Task Group, sorry, the Almatana mm. Battle Group working with the Japanese Reconstruction Force. So, so one of the really interesting things to me was just seeing all these different nations. And at Camp Victory in Iraq, they'd have flags of all the contributing nations. And Australia was a pretty small contributor. Uh, like I think I think we had a, a ceiling of about five hundred or so, or maybe it was seven hundred when the battle group deployed. And one of the funny things was to me sometimes the enemy wasn't. The bad guys. It wasn't the insurgents. It wasn't Al Qaeda. Sometimes it was just these competing interests. So you put mm. a whole bunch of military-focused people, all with uh, their military objectives to achieve. Maybe there's some national objectives to achieve, and there can be some real rub points. And I was helping to build up some capacity in some of the regional bases. So what were called base support units, uh, just things like power generation and sewage and fresh water and all those sorts of things. And Obviously, some of the frustrations for the Iraqis were this was infrastructure that had been destroyed in the fighting, either in the original invasion in 2003 or in subsequent contacts. And that caused some frustration for the Americans, too, you know, having to pay to actually get this stuff back up and running. And I remember running essentially what was a town council meeting. And so there were a whole bunch of the the new Iraqi military people and a whole bunch of their military civilian people there, a bunch of their civil affairs people, some of the Americans that we were working with. And there was this fantastic British Army brigadier who could see me getting a little bit more frustrated as the morning wore on. And so he took me aside in a break and he said, Rick, for God's sake, never try and mentor the Americans. (laughs) They will never understand it. Just concentrate on who you're trying to work with and mm. of course coming from him and delivered in that kind of way it actually made complete sense because you know i was, i was trying to turn around the titanic or whatever whatever other metaphor you want around it and so that was really timely advice for me because it it just made me sort of sit back and sort of say okay there's only so much that i can i can achieve here so that was that was useful and i think that the other lovely clash of cultures was I think a thing for us as Australians is we tend to be reasonably well-travelled and we tend to be pretty open to different ways of doing things. I think, you know, while we're a really big nation, we're a very small population. So we actually know that we actually, yeah you know, like we yeah you know, like we're not going to make a big ding in the universe, just, you know, like, you know, like particularly as a small military. So we're quite open to their, the fact that there are other ways of doing things. And on Camp Victory, for example... Lots of cooking and cleaning and, you know, base support services were actually provided by Indian contractors. Mm -hmm. And they were obviously, you know, paid pretty low rates and things like that. They spoke a different language. And to lots of the Americans, they looked very similar to the Iraqis, you know, so dark skin, speak a different language, probably shouldn't be trusted, needed to be escorted, all that sort of thing. And there was an American colleague of mine who, who was just a lovely guy. Of course, the Australians nicknamed him as the Staff Officer Toys. His job was to unpack these containers that were arriving almost on a weekly basis with uh, good ideas from the citizens of America. So some guy sitting in his shed in Iowa has designed an around-the-corner rifle or something like that. And the US Department of Defense has said, well, we need to give them feedback. You know, this is great to have public support. So they'd ship it out to Iraq. And this guy's job was to get the things and then Assign it to a different unit and try and do some trials and tests and see what was what was being working. So there was one particular day you had this thing called a translator box. So there'd been versions of this before. You know, you could press a thing. It was you know digitally recorded and you know could say things like you know put your weapons down. You know, where's, you know, like, where are the bad guys? There were, you know, like five or six sort of different, different sound of things. But what they've never been able to crack, remember, this is also pre Google Translate, was getting people to speak into it and for it to be translated. All right. And so I was, I was sitting in the headquarters building one day and the Indian cleaners are kind of doing this sort of stuff. And there was this other American who was, you know, kind of cursing some of this technology that was cluttering up the space and things like that. And I said, well, actually, this one really works. This one works really, really well. And he goes, no, you know it's it's a piece of crap. And I said, you know, watch. So I just pretended to press a button, and I just called out Ricky Ponting, and all the cleaners <laughs> turned around. Okay, Ricky Ponting. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. What does that mean? I said, well, let's try another one. And I said, so I press another button. And it said Sachin Tendulkar, and then the Indian cleaners are going absolutely crazy. He goes, like, like what are you saying to them? And I go, like, no, it's it's not me, mate. It's it's this box that's doing it. It's it's fantastic. So. I think that you know probably says more about me than it does about our American colleagues or, or the Indian cleaners, but it, it but it was to me it's emblematic. You know some of those clashes of cultures that are actually going on, and perhaps coming back to you know like one of the things we we're talking about. This is another one of the rub points. So how do we how do we collectively get around some of these rub points when we've got such a big operation going on, lots of different objectives, lots of goals to be achieved.
1: Yeah going back to that sort of don't try to mentor Americans I think it's one of those lessons for leaders in environments is to look at that the landscape of which you're operating in and to understand the small p politics of of that landscape where do you need to influence and where where's what's the approach for influencing people when you can see that there are opportunities and so great lesson
0: yeah and and it was if I sit back, building building on that point that you just made, it was it was interesting to me. Even though there were only like a small number of Australians serving in Iraq, uh, yeah, and, and like when I was there, it was through most of 2005. But they were actually playing some pretty critical roles. So Major General Jim Molan was the chief of operations. Yes, and so he had a really you know big strategic role to play. But every time I'd watch the battle update assessment briefing that they'd run each day. Invariably, there'd be two or three Australian voices, you know, Major Smith from somewhere or, you know, Captain someone from somewhere else. And the Americans seem to like us, particularly as, as briefing officers. I'm not sure exactly why that was. I heard lots of different responses, you know, it just kind of shared the workload around, got kind of a different delivery style. So that kind of breaks up the monotony of it. But I actually also like to think of it as, I think generally the way we, we are trained is we're trained as generalists first so we can do lots of things whereas the american military tends to train deeply specialized officers and i think that laconic sense of humor really really helps like just another mild side story i remember one of the australians who'd been part of the embedded one of the embedded officers in the in the headquarters giving his farewell speech and he invited a whole bunch of his american colleagues and we're kind of standing around having a barbecue down at the the australian accommodation and he said you know I'd really like to thank the Americans for arriving on time to this war in Iraq. That's it's it's great you're not two years late. And of course to the Australians and the Brits and the Canadians and all sort of stuff, that was that was immensely amusing. And for the Americans it was probably a little bit insulting. And for some of them they were just confused because you know it kind of depends on oh gal like, like on the
1: stories you're told.
0: I'm just hoping now of course so you don't have too many listeners get Gaelic like in the US or there's going to be so you
1: know some vendetta taken
0: out against me, isn't there, mum?
1: Well, I'm hoping to expand my audience in the US. That may not be happening now. <laughs> yeah.
0: At least not with this one.
1: No, no. Look, well, I, I had a post in for two years uh, with the United States Navy and uh, I remember getting really good advice uh, before I went and the fact is that while we share, you know, effectively a common language and, you know, national interests as well, we often don't have the same sense of humour and we definitely have a different sense of humour down under and sometimes you'll find an American that gets it but not always i was interested to sort of explore you know what it it doesn't always go right does it in our careers in the and the military you know it you know face value looks like it's going well but was there a was there a moment that where it didn't go well during your service career and you know where you learned one of those big lessons yeah well I think there's I think
0: there's many moments where Gala, where it didn't go well. There's uh, there's many moments when I reflect back where the, these were mistakes or errors of judgment that I made. But if I kind of put it into a more of a macro context, and I, I take myself back to my time serving in Cambodia, I must say that was a real sort of culture shock. You know, Cambodia had essentially been forgotten by by the West from the you know the end of the Vietnam War. The Khmer Rouge had taken over. Taken over Cambodia, then they'd been invaded by the Vietnamese, and they'd forced the Khmer Rouge back into the into the highlands. But the, the people themselves um, had, had just been, you know, you know, like quite literally abandoned by, you know, like by the Western world for, you know, like for many many years. So the the Paris Peace Accords, largely brokered by the Australian Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time, Gareth Evans, mm-hmm. allowed the the peacekeepers to to kind of go in, and the estimates vary. But one of the high-end estimates is that more than three million Cambodians lost their lives mm. during the reign of Pol Pot and the, like the subsequent fighting and the famine that struck, uh, like Cambodia. So, what does that mean in a in a nation that's actually pretty small? So that's what we we were confronting on a day-to-day sort of basis. So on our first few days, you know, get orientation in Phnom Penh, we visited one of the killing fields, and back then in 1992, you could actually walk through this field and you can still see bone fragments sticking up through the ground. Mm. You can still see bits of fabric. Mm. There was a monument that was built, sort of kind of a pyramid-shaped thing stacked with human skulls from oh, the yeah. bodies of that exhumed from there. I think I've seen that image, yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of like a museum sort of piece, yeah, but, you know, walking through the, walking through the grounds and actually seeing that was kind of uh, kind of confronting. But what was much more confronting was heading out to the various areas where our little unit was operating and discovering that just about every one of the Cambodians that we worked with had a direct relative. So a son or a daughter or a mother or a father, or an uncle or an aunt or something like that, that had actually lost their lives as a result of you know, like the atrocities that were sort of committed back then. So all of a sudden you realize that when you know, From a pretty small population base, if there were about 3 million people that lost their lives, you know, that was about one in four or one in five sort of people. Mm. And there was a cook at the little restaurant where I ate lots of times on the beachfront. Oh, by the way, I lived in this fantastic bungalow that had no roof because it had been bombed, but it was, it was a very nice bungalow and I was able to write home to my mum and say, it's okay, mum, everything's nice and safe. I'm living in a beachside bungalow and send her a photo. It looked good. Uh, the fact that it didn't have a roof or power or anything like that, you know, I, I didn't tell her until I got back. But the chef down at that restaurant, he'd had all his toenails and all his fingernails extracted. They'd never grown back and he'd had his tongue cut out yeah. and he'd had his both his Achilles tendons cut. So the only way he could actually live was kind of by crawling around and uh, cooking in this restaurant. The lady that ran the restaurant, I'm still in contact with. So we actually were forming these really nice relationships and it was. We're talking about things that go wrong, but there's also a thing that goes right. One of the reasons I think it was the most satisfying job I ever had in the military was we were not getting any pushback at all about being there mm. because while the you know, the United Nations forces can make some mistakes as well, at least back then in the early 1990s, the Cambodians had probably been through the worst thing that they could have ever experienced. They didn't know if the UN was the answer, but they knew sure as hell it was probably better than what they'd experienced before. Yeah, And so trying to make that better every day was you know, like, was a real challenge. We were busy with all our military taskings, but it meant we were able to get involved with going to the local schools and teaching the kids and all that sort of thing. And you know, as a contrast in terms of you know cultural rub points and differences, we had a program visit by Senator Jocelyn Newman. Mm-hmm. So she was the opposition spokesperson for defence at the time. And coincidentally enough, had been married to a battalion commander of the Australian forces in Vietnam, and she then in parliament, and what a lovely lady she was. She got off the plane and you know she, they were going to glad hand her and she said, no, no, I'm, I'm the wife of an infantry officer. She'd come with her rubber boots and she said, I want to meet every single Australian serving in Cambodia mm-hmm. at the time. And I think that was roughly you know, 450 or something of us. So that meant she had to kind of really get out literally into the jungle and all that sort of thing. And so the signal came out saying that she was going to visit where we were. Lieutenant Lay, you'll be responsible for her program. So, I'm sitting down at dinner that night, and we had an Irish civil police detachment there. And I said, Look, we've got this senator coming. Like, what are the things that we can show her that will actually help us in the job that we're doing, rather than just, you know, I'll take her for a tour of, you know, things that she will have seen everywhere else. And the Irish civil police guys said, Well, actually, we've been trying to get into this prison that's being run by the government at the moment, and they're not letting us in. And we think there's probably some pretty bad stuff that's actually going on in there. Mm. So I said, "All right, let's see what we can do about that." So over the next week, as we're planning it, I went off to see various different government officials. And the biggest challenge I had, Martin, was explaining what a senator was. Right. Uh, so for a country that didn't have elected government in its history, trying to explain that this was a lady that you know was representing one of the states in Australia, but you know she wasn't that important because she was in the opposition. She wasn't actually the minister, and all that, and she was it was defence, and she was a woman. All of that sort of stuff was it just wasn't computing. So in the end, I cut through all that. And I said, look, she's the queen of Australia. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I go, oh, right. Okay. Now you say that? Okay. Well, what would she like to see? And so we said, well, of course, she'd like to meet you and all that sort of thing. But she's expressed a particular interest in actually visiting this prison. And so when Jocelyn Newman arrived for her day with us, she, you know, we pulled up in a little land rover at the government offices and all of their officials were out the front, literally bowing and scraping there on all fours. And she said, mm. what have you told them? And I said, oh, I was having a bit of trouble explaining that you know, what a senator was and all that sort of stuff. So I, I did tell them you're the Queen of Australia, <laughs> which she absolutely loved. She thought, you know, like, a terrific way of sort of getting around some of the things. But she got us into that prison. Mm-hmm. And there was a particular scene that I will never forget. We went into the, the solitary confinement part, and there, there were probably... They might have been hardened criminals. It was it was difficult to you know, to tell from the kind of poor records that were kept, but it was just as likely they were political criminals, and they'd been in solitary confinement, not allowed outside for a number of years. And so, all the pigmentation in their skin had been completely sort of washed out or bleached or um, you know, like whatever the medical thing is. And so, as they as we literally carried them out into the daylight. It was a shocking thing to see because the uh, actually um, like two of them ended up not surviving uh, like for much longer so it was it was confronting to see but it was really to me a great way of sort of thinking about all the bad stuff that had actually occurred in Cambodia that there were some things that we could do that were actually actually good about that mm. and I think back to other things that I've done in the military and I don't get that same buzz I'm not always sure that some of the things that we did mm. Had a really positive impact, and that's that's for a whole bunch of um, like complex reasons. But I think mm. I think back to those Cambodian times, and just just how formative that was for me.
1: Yeah, I love the fact that you um, shared the fact that uh, she was the Queen of Australia. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it it was a shortcut. Yeah, you decided to leave full time service and embark on a corporate career. What was that? decision point like the journey and then what did you choose to do since you've left
0: yeah so so I think I think partly for me it was incredibly easy because I'd never had any ambition to be a senior officer I'd been selected for promotion to captain but that meant moving to Canberra and running running a policy division which is all important noble work but it just it just wasn't what I joined up for even though I've Already relate to you that I wasn't really sure what I joined up for either, but yeah, but I knew part of that was, uh, your life was not to be a senior officer. So I'd also met a gorgeous girl, we were about to get married, I was very keen to start a family and that sort of thing. So for me, that transition out, I didn't leave out of any regret. And all that sort of stuff, and I was I was ready for what the new uh, the next new challenge was. So mm. the actual transition period for me was was a lot of fun. I took all my long service leave and the other leave that was owing for me, which was uh, gave me almost a year off. And what I did in that time was I wrote a feature length film. So another little sort of odd thing that I did when I was in the military. I think partly it must go back to you know studying a first class honours degree in English literature. I've always been interested in stories, reading them but also creating them. And I'd written a short film that became a, tro- a Tropfest finalist back in the back in the early 2000s. And so when I was getting out, I was saying, well, I wonder if I can make a living out of this. So I wrote a feature length film. And as you, as you can tell, because I'm appearing on this podcast and we're not on Hollywood Lives and things like that, but, <laughs> that, that feature length film has, has kind of got me nowhere just yet. But the great thing for it was kind of getting me out of that that the day-to-day work that i've been doing in the military and giving me almost a year of actually thinking and creating and you know working in a very very different way that was kind of a really nice reset and so so that transition period for me was you know like was you know like was super useful and while i was doing that i was thinking about well what will i do just in case on the rare occasion hollywood might not come calling and so (laughs) that's where i kind of went into this space of doing some leadership development and some strategy work. And I guess like lots of, lots of people you will have on your podcast, and certainly I'm sure, sure lots of people listening to it, there's lots of very transferable skills that we kind of maybe take for granted sometimes in the military that I've kind of used to help me in the work that I do outside.
1: Yeah. So, Rick, so what are you doing now? What's sort of floating your boat when it comes to leadership, which I think is the focus?
0: yeah so I've launched two companies so so like one of them is is essentially just me now. that was the one that I launched when I get you know, when uh, when I first left, and that really specializes on trying to connect up what leaders are doing inside a firm with the culture of the firm with the strategy of the firm because I think if you just focus on one of those three areas, you don't always get the results you do, so I've been running that for fifteen years. I also do a lot of work with Melbourne Business School on their executive education side. And so I've been the program director for, interestingly enough, their Department of Defense programs for their public servants since 2009. Mm -hmm. But I've also run the Owner Entrepreneur program for them. And the participants on that were just fantastic to work with. You know, there's, there's something very different when you're working with executives that actually have skin in the game. Rather than executives that are just you know in a role and someone else is paying them and they're getting salary and things like that, so mm. there's some very different motivations at play there. But probably the most exciting thing I'm doing at the moment is uh, myself and two other partners. Coincidentally enough, like one of them, you know, you're like is another another navy veteran. Mm-hmm. We launched a, a company called XED Space, mm-hmm. and we've partnered with the US-based Center for Creative Leadership, and so we're using. The Centre for Creative Leaderships Research and their program designs to power the kind of work that we're doing in Australia. So we're running, and let me just brag for a moment, the only top ten Financial Times ranked leadership development programs in Australia. So, you know, higher ranked mm. than any of the existing business school sort of programs. And that's that's what we mean when we're powered by the Centre for Creative Leaderships Research and their design. Mm. It's fantastic to kind of get that global perspective and be able to bring it here in Australia. And so that's that's taking us into a whole bunch of different set of set of market segments. And like not only are we we're doing that stuff in Australia and New Zealand, but it looks like we're just about to branch out into Indonesia as well. So uh, there's, there's lots of exciting things going on. And I think the other thing for me, as I kind of sh- shift gears in my career, for me now, it's less about actually delivering all that work, and it's much more about sitting around that I'm creating the space and the opportunities for other people to like to deliver that. So empowering others to do things is is really exciting because it's, in a way, it's taken me back to, you know, what I think I was doing best in the military. You know, we can all work hard, but if you can actually get lots of people working hard and aligned in a good way, then you achieve so much more.
1: Hmm. So based upon your experience and particularly running leadership programs sort of since leaving the Navy, and I know you had an involvement in... A mentoring program in your sort of last couple of years in the Navy and a little bit of reserve service as well. What advice would you give the leaders of today? What do they need to pay more attention to, do you think?
0: So I think, I think probably the key bit of advice is being prepared to listen and take a bit more time so you can explore other ideas beyond the first ones that pop into people's minds. So I think particularly in the military, we get really good at coming up with the first workable solution. In fact, that's almost drilled into us but sometimes I think for leaders of today, actually just, you know, taking an extra five minutes or sleeping on something or asking and you know one or two other different people and trying to explore those ideas and make it better. So the less we make it about ourselves and the more we make it about others, I think is useful for all of us.
1: Yeah. Has there been anybody in particular in the corporate world of leadership you're admiring right now?
0: Yeah, so... So I find that a really difficult question to answer because I guess I'm a bit like you. I read lots of those kind of books. I read the profiles and all that sort of stuff. But I think what happens is the profiles we read are the about the people that want to be profiled. Right. And I think kind of the leadership I really admire are those behind the scenes people, the ones that kind of put other people forward to sort of say, hey, look, I've got a fantastic team around me. Don't interview me. Speak to these sort of people. So I'm actually not sure that we, as readers, or you know, the market, or however you want to describe us, I'm not sure that we actually get to see who the really good leaders are. There is one fantastic young guy that I've been working with for the last year or so. Like in his late twenties, he's just sold out his business for 180 million dollars, and no one will have heard of him. Right, no. but he is—he's a lovely fellow. He's got those listening skills. He's got those empathy skills. He also drives really hard for results. But it's kind of it's the way he drives hard. So I think think those are the kind of people. And as I like, perhaps it's just also also getting a little bit older. Perhaps it's also me kind of looking back at all those senior sailors that influenced me. The leaders I'm really admiring are those ones that are actually coming through at the moment. So hmm. they're not the CEOs, they're those emerging leaders at multiple different levels, the ones that hopefully are going to change the business world and our communities you know, like for the better over the, you know, like over the next, you know, 10, 20 years.
1: Yeah. So the lesson for that developing leader then really is to look around internally where they are. There's, I mean, there are a bunch of resources and content out there that talk about leadership but maybe it's finding the right person in your network or in your organization that you can sort of go to school with and on these subjects and even have reflective conversations.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean that if we can if we can kind of build that professional network and I know lots of people react to the word network, but if we if we think about it as just a source of information and support and encouragement, the more we can actually build that for people within an organization but also maybe Maybe just you know, like one step remove. It might have been someone else you went to went to university with. It might be someone you worked with in a past job and things like that. The more we can actually seek out, some, particularly some disparate views and uh, you know people's perspectives that might be different to you, I think the more useful things might be for all of us.
1: Yeah, I've, I, in work I've done, it's certainly when you talk about networks, it's probably for most people, it's the area that needs most development, and I think it's actually about finding good questions that help you start the conversation. And you know, simple things like just saying, look, I've got an idea. Can I pressure test something with you, for example? Or if I wanted to have a conversation about this, what would be the best way to do that? Just open the door. And I think that's probably where we need to help people, isn't it? To help people just to be able to start a conversation.
0: Yeah. And I think that if you like that that sleazy perception we have about networking where we're trying to sell something to someone else, yeah. I think we can pop the balloon around that mm. because what we're really doing is we're not trying to sell something. We're seeking some advice. And I don't know about you, but you know, if someone sends me an email or picks up the telephone and says, hey, Rick, I just want to run this by you, I can't ever remember saying no. <laughs> mm. That's stupid. I'm, I'm not going to take your call. So if you're asking for help and support and encouragement, I think that's a very different way of actually looking, uh, looking at networking. And then, of course, if we flip that around, what can people like you and I, perhaps have got you know, runs on the board or you know, scabs on our knees or you know, some more experience? How do we actually share that back? How do we offer it? And the 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 adage I've always thought about is this horrible expression about the leaders that say I've got an open door policy. <laughs> And the reason I don't like it is it kind of implies to me that I need to go and see them. Yeah, and I've got to go into their space. And I think the really effective leaders that I've seen, and I try to do this as much as I can myself, is is be out there and be approachable. So be in other people's spaces and things like that. And you know, I think about the ship environments that you that we both shared. We know that the you know lots of the most effective leaders were the ones that were you know would get out of their or get off the bridge or get out of their cabins, or get out of their offices, or get out of their workspaces, and they'd find they'd find different ways to actually connect with people. I know for me personally, one of the best things to do was to spend at least one night a week. I would spend in the galley with the night cook. okay, because the night cook is often working by themselves, and their you know their job is essentially is to get the midnight meal on. And then do all the all the preparations for the vegetables and the desserts for the next day, and then get breakfast started. Mm-hmm. So it's often a bit of a solitary sort of thing. You need a bit of you know someone that can be a self managing able seaman. Some of the sailor cooks love being the night cook because no one's telling them what to do. <laughs> but yeah, but others don't like it. I used to love going down and spending a night at least once a week with the you know, with the night cooks because that galley becomes this sort of central information exchange point, And I would discover everything that was going on the ship. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you'd find find out who was upset with who and, you know, what the captain really thought about different things. And, you'd, of course, you'd really get to know the a lot of those people are dropping in much more because it was kind of like, you know, dropping into, you know, your friendly cafe or something like that. So I think coming back to the point about, you know, you know actually be out there, be approachable so that people can ask you for your advice and you can actually share it as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for getting down back to the floor. But as a leader and a manager, had the same experience in command of my ship, you know. And I actually used to go and spend a day in the galley every couple of weeks, just to find an opportunity to uh, to do something different, but also just to connect with people in a better way. Those more formal communications they don't often work. You don't, you won't really get the feedback you need, and so you've got to find a way to have those informal conversations, whatever that might be.
0: I no, no, I think that's absolutely true. And you know, I remember the, the chief of navy that I worked for back in the back in the mid nineties. One of the things that he'd love to do was if he was traveling and not in his big, you know, gilt covered uniforms, they'd just be in a suit, he'd just go for a wander in Russell Offices, mm-hmm. And he'd perch himself up on the edge of a desk and he'd just ask someone what they're up to. And invariably what that would mean for me is I'd get a phone call from, you know, Commander Martin Brooker, who'd say something like what the hell are you doing? Letting the chief of navy wander around? <laughs> he's, <you> know, <laughs> he's asking questions because I think there's the other thing, particularly in a hierarchical organisation, where people like to control the flow of information. So, if the chief of navy's actually found the particular person working on a job and they discover it's actually not everything that's been in the weekly dot points, yeah. then that's uh, that causes some problems. I think that's one of the challenges for leaders too is you know how do they actually find out the ground truth or how we want to describe it? And so being out there is definitely a much more effective way than actually waiting for it all to come to you.
1: Yeah. Well, Rick, look, it's been fascinating to have this conversation. Thanks for sharing so much of your stories from different places around the world, your service career, and I reckon we could talk for a lot longer on some of these issues and I hope we find the opportunity to do that sometime soon. I want to finish up with the rapid-fire questions. So if you could fill in the blanks or for me. So the first question, leadership is blank.
0: Yeah, so I think it's something that all organisations need more of. Leadership something more organisations need more of. But in my experience, it's also something where effectiveness and seniority don't always correlate. So I don't think the best leaders are always the ones at the top of the organisation. So I think that reinforces the first point. So leadership something all organisations need more of.
1: Yeah, excellent. What's your go-to book on leadership?
0: Yeah, this is a very hard question for me to answer. So I think that there's lots because I'm a mad reader. But the one that's really rattling through my mind at the moment is a book called Social: Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect by one of I think one of the world's preeminent neuroscientists, a guy called Professor Matt Lieberman. And so it's a, it's a fantastic read. Social: Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect.
1: Okay, fantastic. Sounds like one I need to read myself. I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. Arabic, Malay. Indonesian,
0: Chinese, you know, all those sorts of things. I I really wish that my language skills were much better than what they are. I actually picked up my Khmer pretty quickly. I picked up a little bit of Arabic, but it would have been infinitely better for me if that translation box I mentioned in Iraq was, you know, implanted in all our brains because I think being able to relate to people in their own language is just super useful.
1: Yeah. It certainly helps that cultural divide, doesn't it, you know? If you've actually taken the time to learn their language because they've learned ours. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company organization. What are your first words to that person?
0: I've used this many times, and it's words to the effect of let's have a brew and talk it through. Mm-hmm. So, this is something about slowing down and actually. Discovering, and like discovering what's going on. So let's come out of panic mode and let's come into you know, explore mode and let's definitely not get into blame mode. Mm, excellent.
1: And lastly, do you have a go-to quote on leadership that has most influence on your leadership style? Can I have two? You can.
0: All right, so I'll give you one from Harry S. Truman, which was something to, to the effect of like, it's amazing what can be achieved when you don't care who gets the credit. And so I think that's a really, really useful one. I love that. But the one I'd like to leave you with is the one that my dad used to use with me, which is catch someone doing something right. Yeah. Nice. And what he meant by that was let's try and reinforce things when they're actually working rather than trying to catch the culprits when they're doing things that are are wrong. So that's one that still sticks in my mind many, many years after he probably first told it to me when I was a young boy. Yeah.
1: What's your dad's name so we can make sure we record it properly? Oh, oh, my dad's
0: name is Terry Lay. Terry Lay. Also happens to be my brother's name. Right. But I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about Dad. <laughs> <name. laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, Rick, look, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for giving so much of your time and and so much of your knowledge and experience. I can't help but think we probably need to come back and have another conversation sometime down the track and maybe unpack a subject, I guess, around culture and what you're doing uh, in your current work but for today thank you look forward to catching up sometime soon
0: yeah thank you very much for the opportunity to to share some of my thoughts and recollections martin been a great pleasure to be to be on your podcast and i i just hope uh, like some of the listeners actually enjoy what we've had to say and there's something useful in there for them as well
1: yeah i'm sure there will be thank you thank you for joining us on this episode of frontline to boardroom So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.